Hi, it's Jonathan. Welcome to episode 72 of Mosin at Large. On the podcast this week, Amazon, Apple, Facebook and Google under fire from the US Congress. What could be the accessibility consequences of that? And are you ready to jump into a self-driving car and will it happen in our lifetimes? Mosin at Large Podcast. You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736 and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast. And I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. Nice to be back with you, and I am back in my happy place. My happy place, here at the studio at Mosin Towers. After spending a week away with Bonnie, it was really nice. We've been massaged and pampered and just had some time to connect with one another And that was really good. It's been quite a year, hasn't it? So we were very fortunate to be able to get away. Nice to be back, though. Always good to be back. And uh, reporting on the technology side of things, I'm very pleased to say that the Bose speaker, the portable speaker that we reviewed, performed really well. At the resort that we were staying at, they had unencrypted Wi-Fi that didn't require any authentication, which is cool. And they've got fiber, New Zealand's famous gigabit fiber throughout the place. So we had good connectivity. And I was actually able to connect the Bose portable speaker direct to their Wi-Fi. So we had the soup drinker and we were able to listen to Mushroom FM whenever we wanted. And it was all very satisfactory. It did take me a while to try and work out how do you connect this to Wi-Fi in an accessible way. But then I found that you can actually press a combination of buttons on the speaker that makes it appear in a web browser and actually it makes it appear in quite an accessible way on the Bose Music app. So while I had to fussick fussick around in the manual a little bit, I did actually end up getting it connected to the Wi-Fi fairly easily. And the sound was really impressive. It filled the room that we were in with glorious, very full, rich sound. So that's good. I do note, though, that I made an error 
when I was unboxing and setting up the speaker on the podcast, and I thought that Alex was saying a Tower of Trouble, which was quite a cool name. But no, that's just me and Alex not getting along. It's actually Tower of Treble. That's what it was calling the speaker. (laughs) Tower of Treble. Now, Louise is rising in on this subject. He says, I was surprised to learn that you got a Bose speaker after owning so many Sonos speakers. I got three Bose speakers, Sound Touch 20 and Sound Touch 10, before you got me into Sonos. Although the sound quality of the aforementioned speakers is very good, setting them up is very difficult, and the Sound Touch app is pretty inaccessible. I must point out that the Sound Touch speakers use a different app to the one you demonstrated in the podcast. After owning my two Play 5 Sonoses and a Sonos Beam, I probably would never buy a Bose speaker anymore. But your considerations to choose the Bose speaker are totally valid. Price and portability. Furthermore, the Bose Music app is much more accessible than the SoundTouch app. Yes, thanks, Louise. That's absolutely right. I think you have to pick the right tool for the job, don't you? And so many of us tend to approach our technology choices with this sort of religious fervor. It's almost like, you know, you talk to people who voted a particular party all their life. And even if uh, they might see some merit in the other party in this particular election, they can't do it because their party vote is somehow this important part of their identity. And I don't want to get like that with my technology. You know, if I really felt that an Android phone, for example, would suit me better for my particular use case at a given time, I'd buy it in a heartbeat. I don't consider myself wedded to any technology. So yeah, the Sonos move would have been nice. And there are some minor accessibility challenges for sure with the Bose app as we demonstrated in the review. But overall, it's so cute and portable and full and rich. I was delighted with the purchase, especially getting it connected to the Wi-Fi and having the voice service and stuff like that and the AirPlay and all of those good things. So it worked out well. Now, coming up, of course, we have the next Apple event. If you were disappointed with the last one because there were no new iPhones, even though I did try to warn you, I did say there would be no new iPhones. But if you were disappointed because there were no iPhones, your cup will runneth over with this event. And we are going to have a special episode of the Mosin at Large podcast as we do after these Apple events. We're going to record it straight away. The moment that Tim starts to rap, and then we'll publish it so that you can hear any physical descriptions of the devices, which will be particularly relevant, given that we are going to have four new iPhones this year, by all accounts. We'll have Judy Dixon and Mike Fair with Heidi Taylor and me, and it's going to be great to showcase these new devices for you. If you have been lamenting the lack of a small iPhone in recent years, you will be pleased to know that it looks like this is your year. There's a 5.3-inch iPhone apparently in the lineup. And the word is that this is most likely going to be called the iPhone 12 mini. Maybe not, but most likely the iPhone 12 mini. Nice little phone if you like that kind of thing. Of course, with little phones come smaller batteries. So that is one of the trade-offs that you make. And the word is that the iPhone 12 mini may not be available immediately. You may have to wait until early November to get your hands on the iPhone 12 mini. 
There'll also be the iPhone 12 and the iPhone 12 Pro. And the word is that the iPhone 12 will be available immediately and possibly the iPhone 12 Pro could be available immediately. But the iPhone 12 Pro Max may not be available until early November as well. And it's the iPhone 12 Pro Max that will have all the 5G bands. And apparently that may only be the case in the United States. So we'll get some clarity about that, obviously, when the Apple team takes to the stage on Tuesday, US time at 10 a.m. Pacific time this coming Tuesday. And you'll be able to watch it on Apple's YouTube channel, on Apple TV, and of course by going to apple.com. Now, what's extraordinary and slightly frustrating is that there's also pretty intelligent word on the street that we may not see the Apple AirTags. Now, I have been talking about Apple AirTags for a long time on this show. AirTags, the little devices that are supposed to compete with the tile so you can attach them or stick them on things and use the Find My app to locate them. And the code for these AirTags has been in versions of iOS for quite some time. But it sounds like the hardware may not quite be ready. So it would be nice if that rumor is wrong, but some pretty credible sources are pointing to don't expect Apple AirTags this time either. In fact, some pretty credible sources are going as far as to suggest we might not get them until March next year, which is a shame. Still, just before we left, I bought another tile and replaced the battery in a couple of tiles. So I guess I'm set up with tiles for the duration. But gosh, I hope that Apple AirTags aren't turning into the new Air Power. You remember the Air Power charging mat? I guess the only difference here, though, is that Apple did actually go on stage and announce the Air Power charging mat. And then one Friday afternoon, they just quietly put in there, oh, by the way, we're not releasing this anymore because we've had some technical difficulties. To be fair to Apple, they haven't actually announced the AirTags yet. It's just been people fossicking around in the code that have caused us to know that these AirTags exist. Now, there's also a suggestion that we're going to be getting a HomePod Mini coming in at a $99 US dollar price point. Fewer tweeters and woofers, smaller, basically a scaled down version of the HomePod. One of the things that bears this out is that Apple has now withdrawn competing speakers from the Apple Store. For a while, you could buy Sonos and Bose products and stuff from the Apple Store. You can't do that anymore. And there's a suggestion that Apple is getting into the home speaker market in a bigger way. Good luck, because... HomePod has not done particularly well. And frankly, I think one of the reasons for that is Siri. I mean, do you really want a device in your house, like a portable speaker that's powered by the weakest of all of the voice assistants? I'd also be interested to see whether the HomePod mini is available in New Zealand, because at present, the HomePod has not been released here. And whether they might just open it up a bit and make a much wider range of services available on HomePod. Word is that we are not going to see the new Apple Silicon Macs. I know that there's a lot of interest in this. I'm interested in this. But my understanding is that that might not happen until a November event. So there'll be a lot of focus 
on iPhone, on the fact that this is the first 5G iPhone. Extraordinarily, I saw a survey the other day that said that 48% of Americans think that the iPhone they have now already does 5G. Part of that is AT&T's dodgy marketing, where back in February of 2019, they had their sort of fastest 4G described as 5G. They did this before, didn't they? With 3G, I remember they had some sort of slightly faster thing and they called it 4G before it was genuine LTE 4G. So 48% of Americans who have an iPhone, according to the survey, think they've already got a 5G iPhone. And that could be pretty difficult for Apple to get past that, particularly in this COVID era where people may not be as keen to upgrade their devices. You know, we're, we're living in uncertain times and they think they've already got a uh, 5G phone. Pretty extraordinary. But of course, it will have the A14 Bionic chips. The uh, iPad with that A14 chip has not shipped yet. I guess they didn't want to steal the new iPhone's thunder by shipping the iPad first. So we'll get a lot more information about performance. There'll be a LiDAR scanner on the higher-end phones, on the Pro and the Pro Max, and we'll have to see whether there are any other goodies that might entice us to buy the iPhone. So maybe you're in the market. I'm not sure whether I am or not, but we'll just see what happens when Apple makes the announcements on Tuesday. In the height of this crazy political season in the United States, the U.S. Congress has released a report which would usually have garnered, I think, a lot more attention than it has. The House Antitrust Subcommittee collected over a million documents and conducted many interviews as part of its investigations of Amazon, Apple, Facebook and Google. Their report is damning. And what's interesting is that while there's quite a bit of disagreement about what the solution is, there is not any disagreement about the fact that the problem exists. The report claims that all four companies abuse their market-dominant positions in a way that hasn't been seen since the days of railroad barons and oil tycoons, and that the status quo cannot be allowed to prevail if we want a market where innovation and fairness are at the core. The report, which is around 450 pages long, and that's only the main report, there are a couple of minority reports, and they're available online in accessible formats, is a compelling read. It covers each of the four companies in detail. Now, since I know that most people who hear this show own an Apple device, I want to start by spending some time commenting on the Apple part of the report to give you a sample of this report's flavor. Even if you just take a cursory interest in technology or business news, you'll know that Apple has been under fire by increasingly vocal developers, including Epic Games and Spotify, for controlling access to iPhones and iPads by way of the App Store. Spotify was a strong player before Apple even entered the streaming music space with Apple Music back in 2015. Yet Apple Music is baked into the operating system. Plus, if Spotify wants to make it as easy as possible for Apple customers to subscribe, then they have to pay Apple, who is both the operating system manufacturer, the virtual store owner, and the owner of a competing service, a 30% cut of all subscriptions created within the iOS Spotify app. Not only is Apple imposing a hurdle on Spotify that Apple itself doesn't have, 
but it also gives Apple vital market intelligence about its key competitor, the leader in the space, letting Apple know how many iOS users are making use of a competitive service. Now, this is exactly why you can't join up to Netflix within the iOS app anymore. Netflix got fed up and they declined to pay Apple the 30% cut. So out it goes from the app, creating some inconvenience. Many people prefer Kindle over Apple Books because prices are often better and it's cross-platform. You can read a Kindle book on your Amazon Echo, your Windows device or your Android device But since Amazon understandably doesn't want to pay Apple 30% of every sale made to iOS customers, buying Kindle books involves using your browser. Buying a book with Apple Books is relatively seamless. It's a good experience. Now, Apple does sometimes cut deals with certain companies to either lower the commission level or waive it altogether. But this is Apple playing favorites. I think If there's an accessibility angle in all of this, it's that undoubtedly it's much more straightforward, particularly for novice voiceover users, to make an in-app purchase with the aid of Face ID or Touch ID than using the browser to get around what could be a busy page and then make your purchase using a credit card. If a developer wants to distribute an iOS app to a wide public audience, the App Store is the only game in town. The tech press often feature app developers whose livelihoods have been put in jeopardy and even permanently curtailed because of Apple's heavy-handed behavior. Think I'm exaggerating? I can take you back to an emergency episode of my Blindside podcast that I used to run, which I rushed out along with an open letter on my blog to Tim Cook. This all went down in November 2017. Marty Schultz was, at the time, prolific in releasing cool new titles under his Blindfold Games brand. Someone at Apple had decided to give Marty some attention just out of the blue and ruled that all of his games were too similar and they weren't going to accept any more Blindfold Games. He was told to consolidate his games into a single app which would have fundamentally broken his business model in this small market. Now, he tried to reason with Apple, but he couldn't get anyone to engage. And of course, this is part of Apple's culture. If they don't want to talk to you, then they bloody well won't talk to you. It took pressure from the blind community for someone to intervene and see sense. Marty wasn't doing a thing wrong. He was creating some great products for an underserved market. If he wanted to continue to cater to iPhone users, he couldn't take his business to a competing app store. He couldn't even distribute the games himself. Apple had complete control of his livelihood and his business model. The app store is, of course, a convenient and safe virtual store, which as a user, I really do appreciate. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to go back to the Nokia Symbian days of having to scramble around a variety of websites and find the app that I want and then download it on my computer and install it and go through all sorts of hoops. It was terrible. Many people will appreciate Apple's attention to safety as well. But should it be the only game in town? Or alternatively, the only game in town when the owner of the store 
competes with other developers in that store and has an unfair advantage because they also write the operating system and develop the hardware. On Windows, Android, and for that matter, even on the Mac, you can choose to obtain apps from anywhere you like, mindful that you run those apps at your own risk. There's an argument to be made that Apple's sandboxed approach doesn't lend itself well to third-party apps, but there are always APIs and ways around that. After all, you can now install shortcuts from anywhere, as long as you enable the feature to use shortcuts from untrusted sources. You can now install watch faces from anywhere if you want to. So why not apps? Again, looking for the accessibility angles here, wouldn't it be amazing if someone could set up an alternative app store where one point of difference was that all apps submitted to that store had to be accessible? The disability market in iOS is large enough that someone could make a living out of charging a small commission for app developers to be listed in an accessible app store. No more guessing about whether that app you really want is accessible or not. If it's in that store, it's accessible. Apple has come out swinging, saying they reject the report's conclusions and that they are not the dominant player in any market in which they operate. That's actually a fair point. Windows is more popular than macOS. Android is more popular than iOS. I believe Spotify is still more popular than Apple Music. Yet iOS is an influential platform which tends to be more lucrative for developers than Android. The section of the report on Amazon talks about double standards where businesses described publicly as partners are called internal competitors in private. There are accusations of shabby treatment that Amazon sees those partners as disposable because somebody will come along and take their place. Amazon Basics is a fascinating thing, because what happens is Amazon is collecting an enormous amount of data about your shopping experiences. If you buy from somebody using the Amazon marketplace, so you use the Amazon website, but you don't purchase directly from Amazon, then they have that data about the transaction. And they can use that data to influence what they will produce for their Amazon Basics brand and the price point at which they will sell it. So they are both a competitor and the storefront. That's a huge conflict of interest. Now, I love my Amazon Echo devices, as do many of us, but you know, there's a business case behind them. They're a loss leader. They sell them so cheaply because they want you to have them in your home because when you do... Buying products from Amazon with them is far easier than buying from anywhere else. Google, moving to them, they are incredibly dominant in search. And there are concerns that Google's algorithms prioritize its own solutions in various markets, making it harder to find competitors, what they call vertical search engines, like TripAdvisor, for example. When they also have the dominant browser, Google Chrome, then obviously they're going to use their own search engine. And similarly, Android, of course, which is the dominant mobile phone operating system. It all feeds in to Google's search engine, which is still their core business. And while many of us have concerns about Facebook relating to privacy, and it's one of the reasons I got off the platform and then had to get reluctantly back on it for 
a job I briefly held, and I really am often tempted to get off the platform again, although I don't use Facebook very much. The focus of the report when it comes to Facebook is their acquisitions. And this comes up with uh, some of the tech companies as well as Facebook that essentially Facebook bought Instagram because they saw it as a significant threat and they felt it was better to own it and perhaps to ensure that it didn't reach its full potential than to allow it to compete in a fair, open, honest marketplace. They also bought WhatsApp, which they saw as a significant threat to their Facebook Messenger product. Now, as I said, although both parties in the U.S. Congress agree that there is a problem, there are differing views about the solution, and they are mainly philosophical issues, the dysfunctional nature of U.S. politics could be what preserves the status quo. But if the Senate and the White House go Democratic in the November election, major change, I think, is going to come. From the perspective of accessibility advocacy, there is one significant danger that I perceive of a more fragmented market. Advocacy organizations have done a good job of establishing productive relationships with Amazon, Facebook, and Google. Apple tends not to engage directly as much, choosing, for example, with the exception, I think, of one year, to sit out gatherings like CSUN or consumer conventions, but they do have their ears to the ground and they do react often indirectly to customer feedback. If tech companies are broken up or you have a structure forced on them where you essentially have a very clear firewall between these different operational arms of the business, will it create extra work for blindness advocacy organizations? There's a great suite of legislative tools in the toolbox now. The United States has the ADA and the Rehabilitation Act and the Telecommunications Act and other pieces of legislation. The EU seems predisposed to regulation. The level of accessibility we now enjoy came about because of those legislative requirements. We all have to be very sure that legislation is up to the task of preserving and building upon what we've gained if the market is to become more fragmented. I look forward to your views on all of this. The report makes fascinating reading. I encourage you to read it if this topic sort of floats your boat. And we haven't heard the last of these issues, not by a long way. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. Beep, 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 beep. I always have said that I will be the first blind person, at least in New Zealand, to own a self-driving car. I cannot wait for the day when I can hoon around in my self-driving car. No taxi drivers or Uber drivers to contend with. Doing it on my own terms, I cannot wait. And I am so going to be there. Not everybody feels this way. For example, Bruce Taves says, I thought that if you have the time on your show, I'd open the self-driving car can of worms again, as I've been thinking a lot about it. I still think that the longing of so many blind people for auto-autonomy has clouded their view of the practicality of such a unit as part of day-to-day driving experiences. Here's why, including some new thoughts. Driving requires inquiry. When a person takes a driver's ed class, he or she isn't taught to handle every situation that should arise. Students are taught to extrapolate and intuit based on predefined rules. 
The key here is intuit, and the problem is that a computer has zero intuition. It's easy enough to have self-driving cars in a managed environment in a city with fairly uniform weather conditions. But what happens when you add ice, broken branches, toddlers who didn't read the manual and run out onto the street, construction, washed-out bridges, snow, and mud to get stuck in, animals who also didn't read the manual, and any of dozens of other variables that could be added to the equation. If a child is killed because of a self-driving car, who gets blamed? The car manufacturer? The person in the car? The child for not knowing better? What if something goes wrong with the vehicle and it gets out of control and the person in it happens to be blind? What then? You've expressed to me in the past a trust in computers to figure out these sorts of things. I maintained and maintain that it requires intuition, the ability to handle the unexpected and the non-programmed, something with which the best computers in the world are incapable of dealing. Here's a challenge. Can a computer take a printed book, scan it, work out any scanning errors based on context and on the story itself, and then read the book in once voice? I'm not sure what that should be, um, but it says once voice, which it changes for the characters inflected correctly based on the story of its characters the way a human can. This is pretty basic stuff for people. Many other people who can handle this just fine, but would never venture out onto the road. But since no computer could possibly handle the task I've outlined, why would any sane person want to trust their lives and the lives of those they love to a machine's intuition, when intuition in a machine is so badly lacking? Thanks, Bruce. I think much of what you say is absolutely true in 2020. The point is that technology evolves. We wouldn't have thought even 20 years ago that we would have a computer much more powerful than the ones on our desks in those days, in our pockets, doing all sorts of things. Now, artificial intelligence is a completely different thing from increased computer power. I totally accept that. But I also don't accept that the right way for humankind to think is that we lock ourselves in the time warps of any given time period. If we did that, we wouldn't have radio or or computers or even the wheel People keep inventing, and they keep improving. And I think that there is a substantial need and desire for these vehicles well beyond the blind community. If the blind community was the only audience, I don't think we'd get very far with such a gargantuan project. But actually, it goes much deeper than that. I think eventually when we do move to self-driving vehicles, and I know that we will eventually, they'll become more of a utility than something that you own. So you'll use whatever the equivalent of one's smartphone is in that time to summons a vehicle that's close to you, and it will just cruise on by and invite you to get in, and off you go. Computer power will increase, and with that, artificial intelligence will increase. There are numerous advantages, and I'll just take one of your many examples there, which you say a self-driving car can't cope with, washed-out bridges. Of course, it's easy enough to have cameras in these vehicles and sensors in these vehicles. And the nice thing is that when one self-driving car finds a washed out bridge and does all the calculations to make a detour, then you can crowdsource that information. There can be a central repository so that all other self-driving cars are notified, hey, this bridge is washed out. Don't take your human this way. 
because you'll only have to go another way. I mean, it's not even rocket science in 2020 to say, I'm expecting this kind of topography right now. There is a difference here. Let's analyze it. Okay, it's water. We'll make a detour. That's not difficult at all. I don't accept that your comparison about a computer reading a book with the right inflection and different voices and things is a fair comparison because you are confusing intuition with emotion. To do what you are talking about there with the reading, it requires feeling. It requires emotion. I don't have all the answers to the questions that you raise simply because I'm not an artificial intelligence scientist, but I have met people who are, and I know that they are doing all sorts of very complex data matches. These machines are becoming smarter, and eventually, it may be a decade or two, who knows when, we will get there. And I suppose this is just my optimistic nature. I believe we do advance as a species. And I can't help wondering... If we were sitting here doing Mosin at Large in 1961 and John F. Kennedy had just given his speech saying, I believe that man should go to the moon, would you be sending an email in (laughs) saying it's not possible and giving me a screed of reasons why it isn't? Because a lot of people said that it could not be done, that we were just not going to get there and put someone on the moon by the end of 1969. And in fact, even by 1966-67, it was looking pretty dodgy. When humankind sets itself to a task, it's amazing what we can achieve. I would go even further, though, and say that it is not correct to say that driving requires intuition. I would say that a lot of the accidents that are caused on the roads are caused by people's poor intuition or lack of mindfulness, and I'll come to that in a minute. In the end, though, we know that computers are now capable of making billions of calculations every second. And we also know that there must surely be a finite set of challenges that a computer would need to overcome or consider when it comes to the decisions that it makes when it's driving a vehicle. There is not an unlimited series of challenges to overcome. What I do think we have to contend with as a species, though, is the philosophical question you broadly alluded to. And it is this. You're going to have in those vehicles computers making billions of judgments every second about every possible aspect of the road and the conditions and the factors that you're dealing with. So when a toddler runs out onto the road the computer will be making a decision. And you're right, machines are programmed to respond in a particular way given a particular set of circumstances as they perceive them. So when that toddler runs out onto the road, the billions of calculations that those computers can coolly make in a split second will know, if I swerve to miss the toddler, then the person in this vehicle is going to go over a cliff, say, and be killed. If I don't swerve, then the toddler will be killed. Somebody somewhere is going to make a decision about what the computer should be instructed to do. It'll be pre-programmed to respond in a particular way. I think there are a range of philosophical questions like this, not just in driving, but in many contexts as artificial intelligence becomes more of a thing, 
that we really have to contend with. They are fascinating and actually, frankly, quite scary ethical conflicts to resolve. But technology marches on, so we're going to have to deal with those questions somehow. We are not going to put the genie back in the bottle. So I think it's more constructive for us to be a part of the solution and contribute to the evolution of these products rather than saying it can't be done, because I'm absolutely confident that it will, probably, unless I get run over by a non-self-driving car tomorrow, in my lifetime. And I think that's another thing I would point out. Computers may not have intuition, but computers also don't get distracted. Human beings are often not very mindful creatures, particularly with tasks that they do regularly that they kind of go on autopilot for, like driving a vehicle. Sometimes that means that they don't react as quickly as they should to unexpected situations because they're kind of zoned out. They've got an audio book on in the car. They're listening to a podcast or the radio. They're thinking about the night before or the love of their life or who knows what. And then somebody runs out or something weird happens and they're just not quick enough to respond. So it is a question of swings and roundabouts. But I would say that when we get the artificial intelligence right, roads will be a much safer place than they are now because of fickle humans. So what about you? Would you like to have a self-driving vehicle? What are the pros and cons as you perceive them? And how soon do you think it will be before we get them ourselves? Have you ridden in one? Because certainly in some parts of the States, they are a thing. They are happening. Uber and Lyft have them. They're on the roads and you can be invited to step into a self-driving vehicle and be driven somewhere. So this is not the distant future. And I, for one, am really excited about that. Gino says, I've always considered self-driving cars as cool and something I would consider essential if any blind person wanted a competitive edge in the workforce and just daily life. But the logistics aren't. Even if you minus the implications of car accidents, insurance and whatnot, there's still the question, would it find the location accurately enough to know where you were? How far are you from the entrance? Did the car drop you off at a street? Can blind GPS apps help you the rest of the way? These are serious questions any blind individual should ask before buying one of these computers on wheels. I think if these questions do finally get answered, then maybe I'd consider it. But of course, there's the whole ethics of if you get into an accident, who's responsible? A whole new bowl of soup for another day. Well, you see, I think, Gina, that you're falling into the same trap that Bruce is in that you're kind of focusing on the state of today's technology rather than when we get to the point that technology has matured enough for this to be a viable proposition. For example, when self-driving cars do become the norm rather than the exception and something that are just being tested, clearly there'll be infrastructure for parking these vehicles, or rather for the vehicles to park themselves. So you would be in a defined space pertaining to that building. You'd, you'd know that this is where a self-driving vehicle parks itself. And then, of course, artificial intelligence and tools like Ira or Be My Eyes would already be able to get you the rest of the way. If you got in a self-driving car tomorrow and you programmed in the coordinates and you got somewhere, but you couldn't find the door then I know what I'd do. I'd just call up Ira and say, you know, where's the door? That would get me the rest of the way. 
So that wouldn't stop me for a second. Now, Rebecca has a couple of comments on issues we're discussing today. First of all, she says, I am not thrilled with Apple's lack of quality control or at how the big tech companies use our information. But I'm not convinced that breaking these companies up will work. Another Congress would just reverse any laws passed. We broke up phone mergers in the 1980s, I think. I was too young then to know what was going on, but we've had a merger between Sprint and T-Mobile in the US recently. Monopolies would not be such a problem if we didn't have special interest groups trying to get policies passed that favoured these companies. For example, most residents in the US do not have a choice when it comes to internet. They are forced into a monopoly. It seems that cities and companies strike deals of some sort that lead to monopolies. If you do not like a company, make that clear by refusing to use their service or selecting someone else. As blind people, it may be harder to go to local stores and avoid Amazon, so I can't even follow my own suggestion. The ability to drive around and support local businesses would be the perfect excuse to get a self-driving car. But if a self-driving car were available today, I would not be the first one on the road because there is so much I can do online. I do not even want to go out because of COVID-19. I'm more concerned about employment. Forget the self-driving car until you have enough money to be self-sufficient. Thanks, Rebecca. I think there's an argument to be made that it's a bit of a catch-22 that you might increase your employment opportunities if transportation wasn't such a barrier. More thoughts coming in on the education topic. Aaron Linson starts us off for this week. He says, I was halfway mainstreamed and blind schooled as a child. I went to full-time blind schooling in my seventh grade year. I looked at a mainstream school where I would go part-time. I looked at the one school that was allowed and decided not to go. I'm glad I did this. I learned Braille, technology, and became an ambassador through my school. I learned daily living skills and much more that I wouldn't have learned through a mainstream school. Now for the cons. While the extra daily living training was great and technology learning and teaching was awesome, I found the learning was subpar. Teachers would get distracted by students who knew how to get them distracted. While other students, like myself, wanted to learn, I felt that the school was slowing down for the students who didn't understand. This fact might be an issue in mainstream schools, but I don't think so. Caroline Tave says, I've been listening to all these stories and I find them so fascinating. My time was split almost equally between the School for the Blind in Wisconsin and my public school. I went to my public school for kindergarten, the School for the Blind for first, second and third grades, public school in my local district for fourth grade, another public school across the border into Minnesota for fifth grade, back to my local district in sixth through eighth grades, and then back to the School for the Blind for ninth through twelfth. I also spent a couple of years in an early childhood program where I learned Braille with a lowercase b at the age of three. I was always read to as a kid, so grew to absolutely love books and reading. When I entered the School for the Blind, I was already reading ahead of my class, so was put with my slightly older students for reading. I had lots of friends, 
and I got to see many of them during the summers at our Lions camp. The transition, though, to being in four schools in four years caused a few problems for me academically. Since each school focused on different things at different grade levels, there were some things, particularly math, where I missed out. The reason for all the schools was because my local district didn't have the support services for me, and they were unable to find someone, so they had to send me where they had the services. By the time I got to sixth grade, though, I started to miss out on a lot of things. I wanted to participate in activities like swimming and skiing. I was told that I couldn't participate because I was a liability. So while the few friends I had in middle school went off after school to participate in things, I went home alone. I was in the school band. However, even that was a challenge because I wanted the opportunity to experience playing different instruments, like my friends were able to do, and the school wouldn't allow me to do that. I wanted to march with my band in parades, and they let me do that, but I was one of the banner carriers. My dad advocated for me constantly to get me the things I needed to succeed, but at that time I was the only blind student in my district, and they just didn't always know what to do with and for me. The one really cool thing is that they got me an Otsiki Braille printer. This was so cool because it meant that I could do my work on an Apple IIe using Bex, and then send it to the embosser, where it would braille out my document along with a printed translation. This meant that most of what I did no longer had to be transcribed into print for me. The day it came, I was called out of class to come and read the Braille manual so that it could be set up. Being included in this process was one of the most empowering moments for me, and it's one of the positive things I remember about my time in public school. In eighth grade, I said that I wouldn't go to my public high school, and fortunately, my parents agreed. So we made the decision to send me back to the school for the blind. For the first time, I was able to participate in after-school activities. I ran track, was in the band, forensics, public speaking, not dead bodies, swim team, and more. However, as others have said, the level and quality of education was a bit lacking. So, in addition to my classes at the school, I spent a part of my day at one of the public high schools in the town where the school was. This was arranged so that I could get courses that weren't being offered that I'd need for graduation if I was going to continue on to college. So, in many ways, I had the best of both worlds. I've often thought about what I would do if I could do it over again, and other than that extra school in Minnesota, I don't think I'd do it any different. For me, leaving home at age six made me more independent, and rather than being upset when I left home. I was almost always really excited. I started learning daily living skills right away, and I don't know if I would have gotten that at home because my mum always treated me like I was about three and would have done everything for me if my dad and I hadn't stopped her. From public school, I gained social skills that I wouldn't have gotten at the school for the blind. Something as simple and basic as facing the person who's speaking is something that comes naturally to a sighted person, but had to be taught to me and enforced. At that time, I got really annoyed with people constantly nagging me about facing the person who was speaking. But I'm also so glad now. I learned the slate and stylus at the school for the blind, and became even more proficient on it in public school because I didn't always want to lug around a huge braille writer. 
reading Braille was expected of me, and audio wasn't really considered to be an option until I got into the higher grades, so I grew to really appreciate Braille. And finally, I had the experience of competing in activities, learning and discovering my love for assistive technology, traveling and even spending a semester living in an on-campus independent living apartment where I was required to do my own grocery shopping each week, cook two meals a day and pay fictitious bills at the School for the Blind. These are opportunities that I wouldn't have been given at my public school, partly because they didn't want me to, and partly because they didn't have the means to make it happen. So I really feel like both experiences I've had really helped make me the person I am today. Hi, it's Tim Innitzfeld from the Netherlands. Regarding mainstream or special education, I think that for normally intelligent, blind people who don't have additional disabilities... It's not a valid question anymore because clearly now they can be mainstreamed. And if you internalize somebody in a school for 18 years, how do you expect them to function outside that school? I think that the generation which was internalized, some of them are very successful, but I think that the mainstream generation is more successful than the earlier generations. And of course, that's not just because of the way they were educated, but it's just not a question, I think. But that being said, it's very important to bring together blind students and have specialty training on things like mobility or math skills or whatever. So special blindness skills that you need to succeed. And it's not just learning skills. I totally agree with you that getting to know other blind people and adult blind role models, that's so vitally important. I've seen so often that if people experience that there are blind people who do succeed in things, they're also inspired to do better themselves. So that's at least as important as the formal training aspect of such specialty programs. It should be a far more prominent part of the support in mainstream education that we should find ways to take blind people out of the class sometimes. And there are disadvantages to that, but the advantages of getting those extra blindness skills far outweigh the disadvantages. And if we invested far more into such programs, we would have the best of both worlds. And I have some very good experiences with programs like that. Unfortunately, we see that the programs are sometimes stopped because uh, parents don't want to send their children there. Or I also took initiatives for blind university students and then it's a small group, nobody takes the initiative over. So it's hard to keep such initiatives running, but they are very important, I think, because you combine the best of both worlds. Thanks. So quite a sweeping statement you make in that contribution there. I mean, I wonder how you would measure that a particular generation is more successful than a previous generation? How do you measure success? Because really, when you look at the statistics, the unemployment rate would apparently be about the same. By what objective measure would you measure socialization, for example? So quite a broad statement, and I'm not sure you would be able to back it up with any actual facts. Marissa says, I was mainstreamed from kindergarten through 12th grade. I had a resource room with a teacher for the visually impaired, received all materials in large print. Unfortunately, I had to ask for cane training from O&M since I have usable vision. The O&M teacher, when I was younger, didn't think I needed one. 
a very big mistake on her part. As I have heard from other O&M teachers I have spoken with, I wanted advice from listeners. I have been legally blind from birth. I have been contemplating the idea of attending a school for the blind slash rehab center. As I could use some guidance on learning to cook and freshen up my O&M skills, assistive technology, I'm pretty well off there, just gain skills as it relates to blindness. Are people who are blind better off receiving training in their home environment, having individuals who specialize in blindness teach the person? Which schools would your listeners have me look into? Obviously, I wouldn't be doing it at the moment because of COVID. I feel as though it would be an experience for me. I am very close to my family, so it would be hard to be away for an extended period of time. Good to hear from you, Marissa. I know that the NFB training centers come highly recommended by many. I know there are some who don't believe in the way that they teach, but there is a lot to be said for blind people teaching other blind people the skills of blindness. And actually, depending on the relationship that you enjoy with your family, if you're in a family environment where people are genuinely trying to be helpful and do things for you, and I know many family members of many of us do that because they're trying to be genuinely nice and helpful, you may find the break does you the world of good in terms of empowering you, giving you additional confidence, and of course, those all-important additional skills. Some years ago now, probably about 20 years ago, I think, man, the time flies, I was part of a group that actually sent somebody as part of a scholarship to an NFB training center from New Zealand because we wanted to have somebody go through the program and evaluate it, essentially, see what skills they came back with so that we might influence our own programs here in New Zealand. And I have to say that while there are always exceptions, the confidence and the blindness skills of the people that I see graduating from those NFB centers is by and large quite remarkable. Really, they do seem to do a very good job. But we'll open it up and see what others have to say. Hi, Jonathan. This is Amy Rule calling in about two issues. One, just to comment a bit about the great debate regarding blindness education. I was fortunate enough to go to a mainstream school here in the U.S. before all of the alphabet soup and all of the laws that came into practice. What that meant for me was that because I lived in a rural area where there were no professionals available to teach me Braille and other blindness skills, we had to be pretty creative. And actually, for me at least, that was a positive experience because my parents and the school to which I was assigned didn't know what to do with a blind person. They treated me normally and expected the same of me that they would of any other student. I was fortunate enough to have a quality education. There were a few bumps in the road. For example, I can recall hanging upside down from the uneven parallel bars and having the teachers exclaim, I wonder how we explain the next part, and thinking that it would have really been a much better idea for them to think about that before I got up there. However, with a few exceptions, such as challenges learning calculus from a tape, I very much thrived in that environment. 
And it was not until I actually hit the job market much later following the receipt of my graduate degree that I ever understood how many blind people had suffered from having low expectations and how many sighted people really diminished our capacities as equal citizens. I think that if mainstreaming is done correctly, and especially now with all the advances, I think it is the best, or at least it was the best for me. People's situations all vary, and I understand that not everyone can benefit from this experience. But I think the underlying point is that if you are going to any school, be it a school for the blind or a public school, or mainstream setting, that the most important thing is that expectations be high and that the same is expected of a blind person as it is to their sighted counterparts. Also, I truly believe that although I perhaps did not learn every blindness skill in the same way or the, quote, prescribed way, quote, I benefited greatly from all of the social uh, opportunities I had, which, in my view, is one of the most neglected areas of education for the blind. And finally, very quickly, I would just have to say, if I could get into a car that was driven by the computer, I would take my risks because it would afford me so many extra opportunities for independent travel. I'm not sure the insurance companies are going to be willing in my lifetime to let us do that. And I'm not sure I'll be able to afford a new car that has those features, but I would very much like to try it. Mosin at Large Podcast. Steve sent a message last week about what Andy is describing as virtual busking. That's a really good way to put it, isn't it? In other words, connecting his guitar amp to his iPhone. Andy says, I've been searching the Apple store for an accessory cable for your listener who wishes to play guitar on YouTube or another platform. I've seen a better selection in the music store sites like Sweetwater, Guitar Center, or even Amazon. These places also give descriptions with the photos, which I could not seem to find in the Apple Store. A few hints, though. A PC would have been, in my opinion, a better device to use for the purpose, rather than the iPhone. Whichever you use, you probably want an interface with at least two inputs, microphone and line. This allows you to mix your voice with the guitar sound for singing or speaking to your audience. Most crucial... Please, please do not plug your guitar amp speaker output into anything but a speaker. Doing otherwise could be a smoke-filled experience. Most modern amps have line outputs. That is what you should use. Here is email from Floor Lynch. Hi, Jonathan. In Ireland, our lower house of parliaments is having a debate on a bill proposed to legalize assisted dying for those who are terminally ill and with no hope of recovering, who are suffering intolerably and have no power to end their own lives with peace and dignity. I understand that you all in New Zealand 
are having a referendum on this issue as well as your general election on the 17th of October. So we're interested, or I should say that those interested in the issue are, on what your people vote for. There have been a couple of touchstone cases in Ireland in the past few years which gave rise to the campaign to legalise assisted dying under certain quite stringent conditions. There are fairly deep divisions between those for and against. So far, the courts have signed mainly with the traditional view that nobody else should participate in putting a person to sleep or to death. Suicide has been decriminalised. Do you have any thoughts slash reflections around the assisted dying slash assisted suicide topic? Naturally, there are sensitivities where a person's being disabled may be used or abused. Thank you, Floyd. Yes, we have two referenda on the 17th of October, so this Saturday. One is on the legalization of marijuana, which is very tight, and the other is on assisted dying, which is likely to pass fairly easily based on all the opinion poll data. Like Ireland, this one has been in the offing for quite some time. There have been several attempts in Parliament to get this law passed before, and they have failed. When laws like this come before Parliament, they are not government-sponsored. They are put forward in what's known as a private member's bill, and parties don't take a position on these conscience issues. So everybody is free to vote as they choose. This makes the debates interesting, often passionate and emotional, because this is a passionate, emotional kind of topic. So this bill has got far further than any previous bill of its kind has. It would probably have fallen short because there was a view from one of our parties, which did take a party position on this point, that if we're going to legalize assisted dying, then it should be as a result of a referendum where everybody's had the chance to have their say on the issue. The bill has been debated at length in Parliament. There have been a large number of submissions on the bill to one of our select committees, and it has been modified quite a bit along the way. The person who has sponsored this bill actually took it over from a previous MP who started the process but then left Parliament, and I think has done a genuine job of listening to people who had objections that could be accommodated in the law. For example, some in the disability community felt that it was too open-ended to begin with, and that there was a possibility that somebody who had become disabled, say as a result of an accident or whatever, and made the decision that they didn't want to go on living, might be able to use that legislation to end their life. And obviously we would hope that with appropriate counselling and rehabilitation, somebody in that position would go on to have a successful and meaningful life. As a result of those concerns, there was a clause added to the bill that makes it very clear that disability is not a valid reason to invoke this. You have to have six months or less to live in all likelihood, as verified by medical professionals. Those who, for conscientious reasons, usually religious reasons, who don't want to administer assisted dying, are able to opt out and say that they conscientiously object and therefore won't be a part of the assisted dying process. There has to be relevant assurances in place that nobody is being coerced. They have to be able to understand 
the consequences of what they're agreeing to. There are various safeguards. And if you're interested in this, you can go to referendums.govt.nz and there's a lengthy explanation about what precisely we will be voting on. That's referendums.govt.nz and you can read the material using Braille or text to speech. You can also download audio versions of this material as well, which explain the legislation. And in the case of the End of Life Choice Act, the referendum is binding, which means that if, as is expected, New Zealanders vote quite significantly in favour of this legislation, then the Act will come into force. It is not optional for the government at that point. It is still a very contentious issue. There are people who feel extraordinarily strongly about this on both sides. There are some who perceive this still to be a disability issue. My personal opinion is that there are now sufficient safeguards to ensure that disability is not a valid reason for invoking this legislation. I think in the end, the question comes down to whether people should have the choice. I don't know what I would do if I were faced with a doctor telling me, look, the likelihood is that you have some sort of terminal condition that means you are unlikely to last more than six months. Would I opt for palliative care? I'm not sure. Would I go for the assisted dying? I'd like to have the choice. I do think it's important, though, that we don't use this as a country to short-circuit the obligations we have to provide good quality, well-funded palliative care. And I think at the moment we do a poor job of that in New Zealand. Nevertheless, as an atheist, I really strongly object to some who are religious trying to impose their beliefs on the rest of the country. New Zealand is not a particularly religious country. So for people who hold certain religious beliefs to basically say, you should not have this right because my God, whatever deity I believe in, says you shouldn't, is in my view not the New Zealand way. No one's forcing anybody to do this. And I think that's very important. No one, of course, should be forced So if ending your life early is against your religion, then it's important that everybody respects that. But equally, I think it's important that we respect the choice of those who don't hold those religious beliefs to end their life early if there is a genuine reason and there is demonstrable proof that suffering will ensue. So, yeah, it's a pretty highly charged issue here. An email from Stefan in the UK who says, Hi Jonathan, I work as a visually impaired role model in a local education authority in the North Midlands of the UK. Our corporate IT team won't allow us to install NVDA on our staff machines, apparently for security reasons. And as we've decided to adopt a free screen reader policy county-wide, the only other alternative is Narrator. Specialist VI teachers can't play with NVDA on their machines, so we've been asked to look into Narrator as the easiest option. My question is, does easiest always mean best? I know Narrator is a moving goalpost and is improving on a six-monthly basis, but could it be used as a daily driver yet, or do I have a case for maybe advocating for NVDA deployment as it is the more ready product 
rather than a compromise. What have been people's experiences so far? Thanks, Stefan. I guess I would push back very hard on this free screen reader policy. On what basis is that being mandated? Because in my view, it's discrimination, plain and simple, for a blind person not to have access to the technology that best equips them to succeed. And in many cases, that technology will be JAWS. If people are needing to get experienced with proprietary environments, or perhaps kids might like to learn how to do scripting, which is a really viable way to make a living and help them to customize any environments they might find uh, in the workplace in future, to say, oh, we have a free screen reader policy seems to me like scrimping on a reasonable accommodation. And if the UK has any half-decent disability discrimination law, I think that that policy is absolutely challengeable and actually ought to be challenged. I do sympathize with those in IT who have concerns about installing open source software in environments where security is important. But to get to your question, and it would be good to hear others' perspective on this, regarding narrator, in my view, if all you're doing is doing some basic file management and using the Microsoft Office suite, browsing the web with either Edge or Chrome, then sure, narrator is actually really viable. You can compose and review some really nice-looking, well-formatted documents in Word. I have to say that at this moment in time, narrator is my preferred way to use Microsoft Outlook. Since the most recent update to Narrator, it is just so fast and efficient and nothing else is matching it at the moment. So you may find that you're doing just fine with Narrator. Of course, they have changed their keyboard layout quite a bit now so that it feels like JAWS in terms of the keyboard layout. Uh, So yeah, Narrator is just creeping up there. And I believe that for a lot of basic tasks, Narrator is becoming increasingly viable. I can actually run Narrator now for quite some time without switching. So I can use it with Reaper, uh, admittedly not without the benefit of Jim's scripts, but I can do basic work in Reaper. Most of my work, in fact, I can do in Reaper. As I say, I can work in Word and Outlook, and it's okay. You know, I still miss the efficiency in many apps that you get with JAWS, but it's certainly viable. Still, that blanket free screen reader policy makes me very, very concerned and nervous. A couple of items on audio apps for your PC. Justin Coffin is writing in, and he says he has the latest version of Switch Sound File Converter, which is a brilliant wee sort of Swiss army knife of audio conversion from NCH Software. He confirms that you can now create M4R files directly. And yes, I think they have added that uh, for some time. So that's really good news that you can do that and just choose M4R, create your ringtone. And then the challenge, of course, is to get it on your phone. That's when you might use Walter 2, which is an app for your PC that allows you to connect your iPhone and then transfer files without the need of iTunes. So Walter 2 from Softerino also an app for your PC. The good news is that maybe a week or so ago, Studio Recorder version 4 from APH has been released. You'll recall that when we spoke with Larry Scootcon in one of his last interviews in an APH capacity, we talked about all the cool new things in Studio Recorder version 4, including 32-bit float file support and a lot more. If you have Studio Recorder already, if you've purchased it, then you can just go to the help menu 
and check for updates and you will see an update there. It's probably about, what, seven, eight years since they've done an update and this is a big one. And I do hope that we will see regular updates. There are a few things I would still like to see in Studio Recorder, including support for M4A files, which of course are much more common than MP3 these days. Also normalizing to a LUFS value. So a few things that I'd like to see added, but it is such a good accessible tool, Studio Recorder. If you don't have a need for multi-track and you primarily record spoken word, then do give it a look. And of course, you can integrate it into your audio production workflow. For many years, I used Studio Recorder and then brought that material into Reaper. I tend to use Reaper exclusively now because I've got a workflow that works for me, but Studio Recorder is just fantastic. Stan Luttrell says, I can't say enough about the customer support at APH. Since my former computer completely crashed, I had a new computer built. I had a problem where I couldn't use Studio Recorder, and I was exasperated because I couldn't figure out why I couldn't use the program. To make a long story short, Pam at APH walked me through solving the problem. As you know, I have a job whereby I do a podcast. I can't say enough good things about the people at the American Printing House. They really saved my bacon and maybe my job. Hey, Jonathan, it's Tim Cummings. Hope you're doing well. Just a quick question for any of your Victor Stream users, and I know you have a bunch of them who listen to your podcast. I just got a Victor Stream, and I'd like any recommendations that anyone has for a good external microphone to use with the stream. I looked on Humanware's website, and they don't recommend using XLR microphones, and they recommend using something that's got a 3.5 millimeter jack on the end and it's got a pretty high impedance be curious to know what your listeners are using who use the stream as a recording device what they use for an external microphone either a mono or stereo microphone we have a veritable backlog of comments from debbie armstrong on various topics and today we're reading an email about multitasking she says, I'm volunteering on a project involving developing audio descriptions for National Parks brochures photos. It involves a group of blind and sighted folks working closely together on an interactive website. The sighted folks create descriptions which we assist in improving. Part of our collaboration also involves filling out forms that rate the quality of the descriptions and request a great deal of feedback from us. We communicate on conference calls. There's one for the entire group and another simultaneous call for each individual team. So, basically, you are listening to your screen reader plus monitoring two simultaneous calls over the phone. Oy. And with the screen reader, we are navigating a complex, though fully accessible site with projects and tasks, some complete, some in progress, and some just being assigned. I am noticing two different issues here. Many of the blind folks are trying to use their Braille notes taker, their dedicated device to navigate the site and running into problems. Sometimes they cannot type in an edit box or check the radio button. Sometimes they can't find some content they are supposed to review. The browser built into your note taker just isn't going to keep up with the newest versions of Edge, Firefox and Chrome. 
and the web developers of sites aren't testing with your dedicated Braille thingy. So instead of being an equaliser, as the sales reps stress, these dedicated Braille note-takers in this particular situation are holding these blind participants back. I'm using Chrome and the latest version of JAWS with a Focus 14, wish it was a 40 cell, but it's not, and after some initial confusion, I am now navigating the site faster than some of the sighted folks who are less tech-savvy. The other issue I'm noticing is how much multitasking this all takes. If I'm working on the site, it's hard to focus on the conversations. If I'm listening to the conference calls, I'm making mistakes while working on the site. I am thinking when sighted people work on a computer and on the phone in a conference simultaneously, it's much easier for them. My husband has a 19-inch screen when he works with other developers on the phone. He writes software. He easily types and talks, reads and listens all at the same time. I, on the other hand, have only 14 cells, jaws talking, people talking, and think that if I too had the equivalent of a 19-inch screen, it would be much easier for me to multitask. I do think the sighted folks who put this collaboration together tried very hard to make the experience accessible, but they do not consider the multitasking aspect and how much more effort it takes for us to do this kind of thing. I also think that sighted people believe if they've made a site accessible, they've done everything that is necessary. The problem is that so many of us either do not have the advanced level skills needed to efficiently navigate the web or the tools that work best to do that job. The sighted world doesn't appreciate just how hard a task it is to navigate the modern web when you see basically only what's currently under your virtual cursor and where there's no longer a standard interface to rely on. But also, blind people don't realize they need to constantly update their own skills to keep up. That three-week training they had four years ago is not going to cut it. There we go. Not mincing words is Debbie Armstrong. Thank you very much, Debbie. The one thing I'd add to this is that I'm not convinced that sighted people multitask as well as we think they do or they think they do. I read a lot on mindfulness and I'm reading people who say, look, this multitasking thing is a myth. You really can only do one task at a time very well. And if you're trying to do a bunch of tasks at the same time, You're not giving any of them your full attention, and you suffer. So it's an illusion, I reckon, and maybe they can pull off that illusion for longer. But we should perhaps make that point that all sorts of mindfulness research is indicating that multitasking is a bit of a myth. It doesn't in any way change the fact that I think we do have a responsibility to keep current. And there's a lot of training material out there for free. Freedom Scientific in particular produce a lot of good webinars. There are others who do the same, and it's easier than ever to keep up now. Here's an email from Gary Crow about various things. He says, Jonathan, on your last show, you took a couple of minutes to show us exactly how to get the keypad back in iOS 14 when making a call. Thank you. I was very frustrated with the default and had no idea I could get the keypad back. I made the change and needed it twice today. It's often the little bit of knowing that makes a big difference. Whether Braille has a big or little b, I have often wished I had learned it when I was in school. With help from Hadley, I did learn enough to make and read my notes when talking to groups, 
and when needing to have a regular spreadsheet for my work. Even so, more would have helped a lot. I encourage every blind person to at least learn enough to read the label on a pill bottle. Even a little braille is way better than none. Since I seem to be into unrelated points, being blind just means that I can't see. No more, no less. My dad told me many times growing up that it's only crowded at the bottom. There is always room for one more at the top. All I had to do to succeed was get better than most of my peers at whatever I chose to do. If I did that, people would make whatever accommodation they needed to make to get me to do what I do better than most for them. I can tell a few dozen stories of times when he was wrong, but the good news is that his point only had to be right a few times over my 50-year career. It turned out that father really did know best. My final random thought is this. A counsellor in college told me that the truth of it was that no one except possibly my mother actually cared whether or not I succeeded. All the caring had to come from me. Everyone else was just going to have a beer and think, how sad, if they gave any thought to me and my success. I'm glad to report that at least I cared enough and even managed to pick up a few actual fans along the way. Being blind is a major nuisance, but waiting for others to do our success work is potentially fatal. As the little bird says, if it is to be, it's up to me. Thanks for doing your success work along the way so all of us get to enjoy the results of your hard work. It was just darn nice of you. (laughs) Be well, do well, and take care. Thanks very much, Gary. That certainly does work for me. Sometimes it is hard when you've had all of those setbacks to be tenacious, isn't it, and keep going. But it beats the alternative. So I'm glad that you've had that success in your career and that that attitude has seen you through. Last week, Gary and yourself, Jonathan, were talking about the Clark and Smith talking book machine. And uh, you were talking about the, the spooky sounds you used to get. I think they were caused by the rewind tracks. I don't even remember the fact the Clark and Smith tapes were eight, eight tracks. But for talking books, only used six of those tracks. And the other tracks, track seven and eight, were used for rewinding. I don't know if they were right in the middle of the cassette or right at the edges. Uh, and therefore didn't have the, the same quality that you could have got from the other six tracks. And when you, you played it uh, or put the, the cassette into rewind mode, the head used to shoot up, if my memory serves me correct, but I'm not sure if whereabouts in the, the block the actual head was. Uh, and th- when you did that, you would hear this A1, A2, A3, and you'd go through until maybe about the mid-80s when uh, they started putting numbers rather than, than this A1 to, to G2. G10 or whatever it was all the way through the cassette where they just had 1, 2, 3 up to 120 which corresponded to the minutes on the, the actual tape and I think that was the noises that were coming through was that played slowly back over at, no, at normal speed sometimes from the reverse track there was possibly some bleed through uh, and track 
a wow and flutter, which may have also caused that noise. But in general, I, I'm sure it was the Rewind tracks that did it. Anyway, I'm sure people have... They're, they're all memories of old Clark and Smith machines, because I loved them. I still remember the thrill of getting a talking book. Remember during the summer holidays, when there was nothing much on, you'd finished all your books, and you were you were desperately waiting for the postman to bring you something new in Braille or, or talking book, and that, new, that thud as it hit your doormat. Oh, what a pleasurable sound. I don't get that these days when I just go and download another book. It's just not quite the same. But there you go. That's that's nostalgia for you. Yes, as Billy Joel so well put it, the good old days weren't always good and tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems. Now that talking book player thing, I remember hearing those numbers when you wound back. Hey, run. It was all very sort of dodgy. It sounded like one of those numbers stations that you'd hear during the Cold War period, actually. But then I got a replacement talking book machine, I think. And I was really disappointed. It was a Clark and Smith. It was a replacement for the one I had. But when I put it into rewind, it was just the old, like normally rewinding without the numbers. And I don't know whether mine was defective or whether later models just didn't use those tracks or what the deal was. Another thing I also remember about those Clark and Smiths was that because you could select from track one through to track six, when you got back to track one, you, you push this button repeatedly on the top to cycle through the tracks that you wanted to get to. When you got to track one, it would go ping, and I used to like the little bell. As for nothing to do in the summer, Gordon, oh, you sound like one of my kids. I would have thought that you would have been listening to Johnners, old Brian Johnston or Christopher Martin Jenkins and those guys on Test Match Special. On the subject of podcast apps, Jessica Dale writes, Hi, Jonathan, I love Pocket Casts and am currently using Apple Podcasts. I am one of the ones working with the developers regarding the accessibility of Pocket Casts. They are currently trying to improve the accessibility of the Windows app. Both Pocket Casts and Apple Podcasts have Soup Drinker integration. I might switch back to Pocket Casts because having to keep the Podcasts app opened in the background is taking a hit to my battery. Castro doesn't have iPad support yet, but apparently it's coming. John is writing in on various things, and he says, as we've been talking about education, does educational level matter when it comes to job prospects? Do you think a person, blind or otherwise, with an undergraduate degree or master's, would be treated differently in terms of job promotions and prospects as compared to someone with a diploma. I think, John, that at the beginning, it matters an awful lot. The more you advance in your career, if you're fortunate enough to establish one, the less relevant your qualifications become, because you've got a history to fall back on. And if you're good in your field, that's what people look for. But I think it is important to say that this is particularly relevant two blind people in my view, because we really have to have all the advantages that we possibly can to overcome those misconceptions out there. And that makes it so hard. We know that the unemployment rate is so high for blind people. So for me, the three things that I would say are critical for job prospects for blind people in particular are first social and soft skills. So that includes knowing how to dress well, looking at the person you're talking to, and generally just conducting yourself well. Second, Braille, because we know those who know Braille have a much higher employment rate than those who don't. And third, give yourself as much insurance as you can by getting all the qualifications that you can. 
He also says on a different note, do you know any way of transferring WhatsApp messages from an Android to an iPhone? This is the only reason stopping me from switching. I do not know, John. It's not a scenario I've had to encounter myself. But if anybody knows of a way to perhaps export messages, then please let us know. Kevin Chow is emailing in about one of my new favorite subjects, ubiquity networking gear. Well, actually, it's been on my radar for some years. It was always on my list to get this done. But as I mentioned on the podcast a few weeks ago, I finally have got it done and couldn't be happier. Nor can Kevin Chow, it seems. He says, hi, Jonathan, based on your review slash recommendation and others, last week I upgraded to a Ubiquiti Unified Dream Machine and Unify Access Point Beacon HD. Similar to you, I had Apple Airport Extreme, but that was replaced four years ago with Google Wi-Fi 3-pack mesh network. Of course, these worked well for the most part, but I experienced range, dead spot, and intermittent connectivity issues. I was happy a couple of weeks ago in a weird way When my consumer mesh network was having issues, it helps when my wife experiences it, which had me use my Verizon MiFi jetpack to be able to get my work done. It finally gave me a good enough justified reason my wife was sold to invest in the Unify Dream Machine enterprise-grade network and say goodbye to Wi-Fi problems. It was a little tricky and required some persistence to get things set up and configured due to some accessibility and usability issues. With Ira's assistance, I was working with a totally awesome agent who was geeking out. I was able to enable some really powerful and mind-blowing beta-slash-alpha features that are auto-magic and AI-smart enterprise things for managing security, internet, firewall, Wi-Fi, quality of service, geo-filtering, etc. These settings are not required to make it function, but are what makes it a dream. And the amazing thing is, none of these configurations were disruptive to experience or performance, and are set and forget it. Thank you for the amazing and wonderful recommendation of the Ubiquiti Unified Dream Machine and Access Point. It's made a huge impact and a meaningful difference in coverage, throughput, and latency. Everything has been rock solid, and I've heard no complaints of home Wi-Fi issues, which is wonderful. Thank you, Kevin. I have to say, the Ubiquiti gear is just so awesome, and it's just, it goes, you know. You set it up, and you forget it. You forget that it's there, which is really what you want to have with internet equipment. As you say... It is so powerful and robust and rock solid and the coverage is amazing. It is very hard not to talk about Ubiquity gear without sounding like you're a salesperson on commission for it. My only regret is that I should have done this years ago instead of playing with inferior routers. You know, sometimes we make these mistakes where we realize in the long term that had we invested in this proper good quality gear in the first place we would have saved money on dodgy routers and access points and things you just don't look back after buying ubiquity gear i have not talked to anyone who owns it who hasn't said best decision i ever made in terms of my internet and i'm very glad to hear that that's also the case for you mosin at large
Search Podcast. Across the ditch to Tasmania we go to hear from Kirby Harris, and she says, read the new update to iOS. I think I really like it. The features I've seen appear to be incredibly worthwhile. And I've noticed, I hope you've noticed this also, that Braille, when written on one's Braille device through Bluetooth, is more stable than it has been in a very long time. However, when in some applications there appears to be a bug when trying to access the app switcher, has anyone else found this, or is this just me? It's only a minor bug, and there is a workaround. Just go back home from the app that is being stubborn, and it fixes the problem. This is happening on my iPad mini, fourth generation. Regarding great audiobook narrations, I, like many of your listeners, like reading audiobooks. I used to get a lot of them from the Vision Australia library when I was a kid. And I, like a listener from Australia who responded to last week's show, remember the four-track tape players they referred to. I like to read both dramatized and single-person read audiobooks, as sometimes the drama can be incredible, particularly those from the BBC. See, I don't know whether they qualify. This is me interjecting. I don't know if the BBC stuff qualifies as audiobooks. What you're getting there is simply a recording of a BBC radio show that happens to have been purchased by Audible or made available through Audible. Anyway, she says, one of my favorites, which I used to own on cassette, was Tom's Midnight Garden by Philippa Pierce. I purchased it on Audible some months ago and found it to be just as enthralling as I did at the age of around 11 or so. As to books being read by a single individual, I've had plenty of good ones over the years. Among some of my favourites from when I was younger include Anne of Green Gables, Oh, how fantastical, Marilla! by Lucy M. Montgomery, Anne of Ingleside, author the same, and a book called Diesel Boy, but I cannot remember who wrote that one. I know that the L.M. Montgomery books came from Canada, from the library of the, quote, print handicapped, unquote. I can't remember its correct name, but I vividly recall those two books saying that they were recorded for those with a print handicap at the beginning of the book. The narrators were brilliant on the two L.M.M. books. But unfortunately, when Vision Australia replaced Anne of Green Gables, the wonderful narration had been taken away, never to be heard again. I think that what makes a brilliant narrator is, first and foremost, the ability to read aloud fluently. Some people just cannot do this. I, for one, can't read aloud very well myself. This is an important skill to be able to impart the written word by sound. I've read books, mostly recorded by volunteers, that haven't been read too well. The one that springs immediately to mind is a book about Bob Dylan. How does it feel to read it? How does it feel? It was a good read, she says. Well, I thought it would be, but I couldn't stand it in the form VA had it in. It changed narrators every couple of pages or so, and the mix of voices was not only confusing to listen to, but their individual reading speeds made it an intolerable listen. I prefer, particularly in audiobooks, for the narrator to be a professional actor or academic, if applicable. 
just because one can be guaranteed a good listening experience. Getting on to the subject of schooling, I was mainstreamed all the way through. I don't think that my education was sufficient. Not one of the Catholic schools I went to, Catholic schools have paying fees here in Australia, wanted to help me out, and my parents had to fight for funding every step of the way. It wasn't until I got into the public schools, public schools are free here in Australia, that I was actually helped freely, and happily too for that matter. Then I got to the Conservatorium of Music here in Tassie. I found the experience not of learning, but with dealing with the bureaucracy of this university incredibly difficult. I don't think that this is uncommon. In fact, I think it is more common than one thinks. I have now taken to learning music alone. In fact, I have two wonderful teachers, one for guitar and one for singing. They are both absolutely wonderful to work with, and I've even been with them to gigs and various things, and I've played and sung with them. I did this about a month ago, and learning by myself is working wonderfully well for me. I should have been a detective, because this email says aloha, which means it's got to come from Hawaii. Let's see if I'm right. My name is Lance. I am from Honolulu, Hawaii. See? I told you. Ah, oh, tremendous. Well, kia ora from New Zealand to Hawaii. He says, I am a heavy headphone user. Well, maybe you should try going low carb. Oh, 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 I said, not not so much that you weigh a lot, just that you use headphones a lot. Right, sorry. <clears throat> a bit slow today. <laughs> anyway, he says, now I have made for iPhone hearing aids that I use a lot. As a kid, I was listening to things in mono. Then the transition was made from mono to stereo. Then I got into binaural recordings. Not too long ago, I heard samples of Dolby Atmos on YouTube through my smartphone and hearing aids, which I found totally awesome. I was told that I could get movies with Dolby Atmos, but was a little disappointed because I didn't get the full Dolby Atmos effect. I read a post in which you were saying that when a movie was audio described, the Dolby Atmos was lost. I found this to be very disappointing. To enjoy movies with this kind of effect is like high definition to the blind. What do you see as the future of Dolby Atmos? Also, would I get a fuller effect by using regular headphones rather than hearing aids? Well, Lance, I'm actually surprised when you say that you heard an example of Dolby Atmos on YouTube with made-for-iPhone hearing aids and you felt that it sounded good because, to the best of my knowledge, made-for-iPhone hearing aids, or for that matter, most conventional headphones, would just play the stereo track because Dolby Atmos requires a large number of channels. You have your surround, as in 5.1 surround, and then you have another channel where sound comes from above you. Now, that said, I do know that the iPhones are supposed to play Dolby Atmos, so perhaps there is a way of simulating it in headphones, but I guess I would consider it probably a bit gimmicky. If you really want to get Dolby Atmos, you'd need speakers that are pushing sound upwards and from behind you and all around you we are seeing various devices claiming atmos support things like i think the amazon echo studio and some other devices but i just don't see how you're really going to get the full benefit of atmos unless you have all those different drivers sending things in the right direction but if anybody has had some success with dolby atmos being simulated 
in any kind of meaningful way with a pair of headphones or even hearing aids, then do let me know. As I say, it's something that I've not played with myself. In terms of the future, I was really surprised at the lack of response from most people to my discovery that most audio described soundtracks are not available in Dolby Atmos, perhaps because not many blind people have it at this point, And it's kind of a catch 22. Why would they want to get it if it's not widely available for them with audio description? The good news is that Apple is doing the right thing. When you listen to something on Apple TV+, Plus, at least that Apple has produced, you can get audio description and Dolby Atmos, and it sounds absolutely fantastic. So in terms of what the future holds, I hope that we can just gently put some pressure on the studios and say, look, the audio description is great. Thank you for it. But as you say, blind people are likely to really appreciate the Dolby Atmos stuff. Why lock us out and make us choose between audio description and Atmos? So well done to Apple for doing the right thing there. Hi Jonathan, it's May Thompson here. I just wanted to tell you something that happened a couple of weeks ago regarding images on your phone. Well, there's a new takeaway quite near us called Kay's Kitchen and they had the menu up on Facebook but it just said image, image and someone said it's like a photo. So I thought, oh, this is terrible. So I got in touch with them and said that I am a blind person and I use a screen reader on my phone called VoiceOver and unfortunately it doesn't read images. And I said, I quite understand why you would do that, but I'm wondering if you could send a text one, I said, to help other blind people. And you know what? Within a day, I got a reply and they said, yes, they'd be happy to do that. So they have sent a text format of the menu and they just said this is a text menu for blind people who use screen readers. I was very impressed and not only did they do that but they sent me my own one on Messenger so that I wouldn't have to plow through Facebook, you know, so I could just go on Messenger and read it. So, you know, when people do that and it's just quite a small business, it's just started up. And I hope they do well. And, you know, I just thought, how good is this? So they're only, oh, maybe five minutes walk away from me. And I had a lovely chicken curry last week from them. And it was homemade. It was beautiful. And it was delivered. So I'm having something else tonight from them. But it just shows you, you know, if you explain things in a nice way, people are very happy on the whole to help. That's a great story. Good on you for doing a bit of advocacy there, May. And for the foreseeable future, takeaways every night at May's Place, eh? Hey, Jonathan, it's Mike Fair. I still like my Fugu Tough speaker that I got some time ago. It is a rugged thing. It's built for travel. It actually has a jacket on it that is uh, it's part of, of the functionality of the speaker. It's, it's, it's rectangular, very sturdy little thing. Sound comes out of both sides and, and the ends as well. Uh, it kind of radiates bass down into the the desk if, if you're mounting it on something and it has a, a voice guidance so it, it actually will uh will say things battery is charging 
little example of its radio voice. And uh, so it's got basically buttons at the far end. It's got a couple of buttons under the edge that you can hold in. One of them's uh, power on and off and uh, connect and disconnect. And it has sound cues for pretty much everything. If it doesn't say something, it'll have a sound cue. And that includes pairing, you know, Bluetooth, things like that. So... Yeah, the Fugu Tough. It's a really in- interesting uh, speaker. It is Bluetooth 4, uh, but it's still holding up well. And there are tactile buttons on the top of it for play, pause. Uh, one of them has a minus sign, one has a kind of a plus, and then the tiny one in the center is pause. It- it's a nice little setup, very tactile, very blind-friendly. Fugu has a few others in its lineup as well, uh, so people interested to check it out, uh, they might uh, find something if they're just looking for like a simple Bluetooth speaker without any of these uh, digital assistants, then uh, this might be the answer. It is, of course, not news that a lot of people post soup on social media. And I'm sorry, yes, that is very strong language. But let's face it, there is a lot of soup on social media, whether it be insulting people, scurrilous rumors that are not true, all the way through to people claiming that coronavirus is caused by 5G the crazy anti-vaxxers, and the people who can't even start counting from the number one so that they think that the decade has already started when, in fact, we have a few months left of this decade before the new one begins. So there is lots of misinformation on social media. But this one takes the biscuit. Luckily, it's kind of frivolous, but it's incredible the things that people believe And it's become so bad that Reuters, the much-respected international news agency, has set up a social media fact-check service to try and combat the spread of misinformation on social media. And on that service, I read the following. Thousands of social media users are sharing posts which claim that the small bumps on a car steering wheel are braille to help blind drivers find the horn. This is false. The posts show a picture of a cluster of small bumps above the horn sign on a steering wheel, circled in red, with the following text underneath. Just realize that these little bumps, spelt B-U-M-B-S, by the way, on the steering wheel are in Braille, so that blind drivers have no trouble finding the horn to alert other drivers when necessary. The European Automobile Manufacturers Association... ACEA, told Reuters the bumps on the steering wheel were designed to, quote, allow drivers to identify the pressing zone for the horn. They said these dots are more common on older cars where drivers had to press a certain point to honk, whereas on modern cars they are not necessary because contactor points cover the complete area of the pressing zone. However, several online Braille translators show that the cluster of dots pictured on the steering wheel look different to the braille for horn. The National Federation of the Blind, NFB, confirmed to Reuters that the bumps are not braille. Braille is not used on car steering wheels, nor do the bumps convey any useful tactile information to blind people. Drivers need to have a certain standard of vision to drive in the United States, as laid out by the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Association, of the United States Department of Transportation. The NFB said that although a wide range of eye conditions is covered by the word blind, as a very general rule, a person who uses Braille as their primary method of reading and writing will not be able to see well enough to drive. 
Verdict. False. The bumps are designed to help any drivers locate the horn, not Braille designed for blind Braille users. And so concludes the Reuters piece. Now, the first thing I should note is that everywhere that the word Braille is mentioned, it is spelt with an uppercase B. Good on you, Reuters. Isn't that extraordinary, though? Tiffany's email of last week, where she was talking about somebody after she had voted, saying, do you need help getting to your car? It just fascinates me. So often we have these barriers where people have these misperceptions of what we can't do. You know, usually they're quite negative misconceptions that a blind person couldn't integrate into their workplace or use a computer. (laughs) But there are people who think blind people are driving out there. Well, I, for one, am looking forward to my self-driving car. I'm going to be out there. And at that point, there may well be Braille with an uppercase B on the start button. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Yes, Jonathan, this is Becky from Bismarck, North Dakota. And I was wanting your take on reformatting your hard drive on your PC. My question is, how often should one do that? Extremely infrequently, Mickey. I think there are two issues here, so I'll cover both just in case. One is actually reformatting the hard drive, and the other is reinstalling Windows. Reformatting the hard drive is something that I probably wouldn't do unless I was giving a computer away, and I wanted to erase every smidgen of data on my hard drive. And if I was going to do that, I would do a secure format to make sure that the sectors can't be recovered sometime down the track. And there are specialist tools that you can get that will do that. But in terms of reinstalling Windows, every so often, that's a good idea. If you've had your computer for several years and you just find that it's not performing the way that it used to, it's sluggish, weird things are happening, then you can reinstall Windows. And there are various ways to do that now. Microsoft will let you reset all your user settings and you'll have a clean copy of Windows, essentially. You can go even further than that and just uh, install from scratch. I have found, though, in recent years that reinstalling Windows, unless something's become corrupted, which can happen, you know, like the Windows registry is misbehaving, you're getting weird errors when you boot, maybe things are slowing down, well, then it's a good opportunity to reset Windows in some way. But I found that Windows tends to be a lot more stable than it used to be. And maybe that's due to the six-monthly update cycle we're on now with Windows, where they kind of do a refresh at that point anyway. So in terms of reformatting your, your full hard drive, I would say don't do that unless you're giving the computer away. But what do others think? Do you reformat your hard drive more often? And if so, what benefit do you see in doing that? One of the great things about doing this podcast and having listeners from all over the world is that you learn about these cultural differences in the blind community that have evolved or in blindness services. In the United States, They are really big on their audio information services. They used to be called radio reading services. In the UK, of course, you have all these talking newspapers, many of which are, I believe, run by volunteers. And we talked about them briefly a couple of weeks ago. 
Brian Gaff says, if you have access to either the Apple Store in the UK or the Amazon's UK skills, then you can indeed hear Talking Newspapers. The app is called Talking Newspaper and is from Wireless for the Blind. It's available for both Android and iPhone. It's a simple app which allows you to set a region and then flick through the papers available there. Ours, Kingston-upon-Thames, is in the London section. On the skill, it's called My Talking Newspaper and written by another Jonathan. What, you mean there are more? Who runs a company making the content Talking Newspapers produce available in many forms, including over the landline. The skill name is My Talking Newspaper, so you can enable it. Then you can say stuff like, Wake word! Ask My Talking Newspaper to play... Insert the name of publication here. If you want to browse, you can simply start the skill and tell it a town in the UK when it prompts you and select from the choices. You can go back and forth in the tracks by saying wake word, back or wake word, next, etc. All good fun. Thank you, Brian. It is indeed. And I use the Amazon Echo set to US because there are certain skills that we want to have access to, like Sirius XM and a few others that are just not available in the New Zealand store. And there's nothing really in the New Zealand store that I can't get in the American store that I want. And I'm pretty sure it's available there, too. So we'll give this a shot. Soup drinker. Open my talking newspaper. Welcome to my talking newspaper, for local talking newspapers for the blind in the UK. If that's not what you wanted, please exit this skill now. Otherwise, just tell me the name of a UK town, city, or talking newspaper. Kingston-upon-Thames I found Kingston-upon-Thames talking newspaper which has three publications, Richmond-upon-Thames talking newspaper, and Elmbridge and Runnymede talking newspaper. Would you like me to go through the three items from Kingston-upon-Thames Talking Newspaper? Yes. Would you like Kingston Talking Newspaper? Yes. Contents of Kingston Talking Newspaper oh, for Saturday, 26th oh. September. Note, this is track one. One contents and information. Two welcome from Helen. Reader's Introductions, Autumnal Poem and Music. I'll just stop that. So you can listen to the table of contents or you can simply ask it to skip and then it will go beyond the table of contents and get into the newspaper itself, which is in general human narrated. And there's a wealth of stuff you can just peruse on the skill. So it's quite entertaining. You can check out that My Talking Newspaper skill Certainly, it appears in the U.S. skills store for the Echo. And of course, it's in the U.K., so it could well be in other markets as well, such as the New Zealand one. So very good. On the subject of the Envision app and glasses, Stan Luttrell writes, I don't have the glasses and probably won't get them anytime soon because, like you, I purchased a lifetime subscription to the Envision AI app when the lifetime subscription was offered at an extremely reduced price. I recently changed phone carriers and purchased the SE2020. Everything worked flawlessly until I upgraded to the latest version of iOS software. Even then, most of my software worked flawlessly. The Envision AI software 
asked me to log in with various choices, and I logged in using my Gmail account. After inputting the information that the software asked for, the software then told me that I would receive a confirmation email requiring my response. Suffice it to say, I received no such email, and I even looked through my spam folder. After going through this about three or so times, I contacted the folks at Envision. I received an email stating that they would look into that situation. While I'm sympathetic to their plight, I don't want to keep going through the same process over and over again. I'm considering deleting the app and then reinstalling it to see if that resolves the problem. Like you, I have tended to use the Free Seeing AI app more than the Envision AI app. My final point is, if their customer service is lacking for this app, I can't see paying over $1,800 on a hope and a prayer. I don't want to seem like I'm bad-mouthing a mom-and-pop small business, but for many of us, that represents real money. Thank you very much, Dan. I hope you can get a resolution to that. I must say, I have had no end of trouble when I was a small business owner with Gmail. And on that experience, I would never use Gmail for my email. It's not that things go to the spam folder due to an overzealous spam algorithm on Google's part. It's that like you are experiencing, sometimes email just doesn't turn up. I had no end of difficulty with automated purchase confirmation. So somebody would buy something from the Mosin Consulting store and we would have a little auto botty thing that would send an email out and everybody else would get the email just fine. Gmail users often would not. And it wasn't that it was in spam or junk or whatever they call it. It just never turned up. I can understand why people would be frustrated by that. And I'm just not a fan, I'm afraid. There are better options out there. And just before we go, a reminder that we will have that special episode 73 of Mosin at Large, which will be recorded right after Tim Cook wraps the Apple event. We'll give you some analysis. I know that people enjoy those. We'll look forward to bringing it to you. Heidi Taylor, Michael Fair, Judy Dixon, and I will be here. And we'll also publish episode 74 a little bit later because on the live show on Mushroom FM, I did a demonstration that runs about 35 minutes or so of the One Password Password Manager app. So we'll get episode 74 available to you by the end of the week as well. I tell you what, what a busy life. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin at Large.